0: Welcome to the Observer Effect, a podcast of travel stories. Each week, we hope to bring you a conversation with someone we meet overseas, and at least one good story.
1: Episode 123, Around the World in 72 Days, Mexico, where Nelly ran away. I can't thank Nathan Mannion enough for sitting down with me at EPIC, the Irish Emigration Museum in Dublin, to tell the heroic story of the groundbreaking journalist Nellie Bly. If you visit Ireland, you have to stop in and see the amazing work they're doing to preserve the stories of those who spread Irish culture all over the world. And I just have to say that Nathan is one of the warmest storytellers I've met in my travels. Thank you so much, Nathan, for uh, sitting with me to uh, talk about Nellie Bly today. So can you start off by, before you even introduce who she was, could you describe what she looked like, at, maybe at the height of her fame? Help give people an image of Nellie. <laughs> sure, um, that's no problem. Uh, fortuitously enough, we
0: actually have a physical description of her from some of her writings, so it can be quite accurate. Um, <laughs> If you're talking about Nellie Bly in 1887, when she would have been 19 years old, uh, she was 5 foot 5, she weighed 112 pounds, and the report said that she had grey eyes, but she argued with that, and so they were always a little bit more brown. Um, She was the granddaughter of an Irish immigrant as well, who had grown up just outside Pittsburgh, and had later moved to New York, where she became much more involved in journalism. So you can imagine, she was quite a slight, quite a small woman, Um, but a fiery temperament, a sense of determination almost unmatched by any of her peers, and a real pioneer in nearly every field that she turned her mind to, so that might give.
1: Yeah, and so now let's introduce her in a more general way. Why, Why is she important? Why do we remember her now? Well, I suppose she's most well remembered for her
0: work as a journalist. So she was one of the very first um, female journalists in the United States, and she was probably the first to achieve a celebrity in that field as a writer on her own merit. Um, there had been a lot of well-known women journalists prior to that they had often been shoehorned into particular fields and particular topics mm-hmm. that they were, that were seen as the women's remit within any major paper, so they would look at Domestic, domestic arrangements, beauty, fashion, that sort of thing, which were seen as women's topics. But Nellie was very discontented with this. She didn't want any of that, um, frequently rebelled against any attempts to make her write about those topics, and instead wanted to look at women's plight in the workplace. She wanted to look at the role um, that capitalism played in impacting on the poor in urban areas. She wanted to look at injustice, censorship, major news topics that... Investigative journalists today tackle every day but back then it was an almost unheard of phenomena to have a woman looking at these areas and writing under her own name as well mm-hmm. I mean often prior to that even some of the world's leading uh, female writers would never publish under their own names and Nelly in fact did adopt a um, an alias, Nellie Bly, was taken from a popular song of the era, so it was still encouraged to have a pen name, though it was known that the, she still chose a female name as well, so it was known that she was a woman and wasn't simply adopting a male persona to get published. So times were changing, but changing very slowly.
1: I didn't realize the name came from a song. What, what's the story there? Why did she choose that?
0: Yes, yes, so um, it was the popular convention at the time for any woman who was writing to have a pen name, something catchy, um, because her real name was Elizabeth Cochrane. Um, which goes back to her Irish ancestry, but uh, they would often take it from popular culture. So she, there was a very popular song, and in it was referenced a woman called Nellie Bly. And Nellie Bly was an African-American woman, actually. Um, and she really, she really took to this. But when she adopted it during her early time with the Pittsburgh Dispatch, which was the first paper that she wrote for, uh, she had wanted to spell it L-E-L-L-Y, B-L-Y. But her editor, when he would heard the name that she suggested, uh, misheard and you put it down n-e-l-l-i-e but that stuck afterwards so having it having had it already appear in print it was too late to change so she kept it after that even though initially it wouldn't have been what she was looking for so the whole idea of a persona and i guess it also gives you a sense that when you're writing under a different name you have a little bit more sense of anonymity mm-hmm. a little bit more distant as well and later on in her career as an investigative journalist she did a lot of undercover work as well, so Mm -hmm. she would often adopt different personas and different Mm -hmm. surnames as well, so that she could continue to publish stories without being widely known, once she gained a certain level of fame, Mm -hmm. people didn't want to know. Uh, if they heard Nellie Bly was coming down to write a story, they didn't want to talk about her, they didn't want to <laughs> let her in, because especially this type of stories where she did were <laughs> focusing on exposés and uh, finding corruption, finding malpractice. Um, she had to pretend to be somebody else to get anywhere close to these stories, and she went to some lengths so, to do so as well.
1: Before we dive yeah. deeper into that, and I want to <laughs> pick up with that after sure. this, uh, can you describe where we are right now? Yes,
0: so we are in Dublin, in the Docklands, um, we're in a 200-year-old bonded warehouse called the CHQ building, <laughs> uh, beautiful space. But in the vaults of this building is a very special museum. Um, I'm going to say that because I'm biased. It's my museum. Uh, <laughs> called EPIC, the Irish Emigration oh, Museum. I'll second it. I'll confirm. It's a special museum. Oh, it is. He's been bought. <laughs> um, but we're a very young museum. We're only three years old. We're Ireland's first digital museum as well. I didn't um, and did that. It's so... Yes, wow. yes. Yeah. So May 2016. That's, that's
1: incredible what, what you guys have accomplished in such a short amount of time.
0: We, we like to think so, but... Um, Again, a little bit like Nelly, the sky is always the limit for us. We don't (laughs) stop on our laurels. We're hopefully aiming bigger and better every year. And that really seems to be something that's taking place here. But the museum actually looks at the story of Irish emigration. We're 1,500 years. So back from the 6th century all the way up to today. And moving forward, because emigration isn't just like any other historical event, it's ongoing all the time. It shapes society. And contemporary emigrants leaving today are also part of that Irish story and need to be recorded. Mm -hmm. So we we use personal stories in the museum. We have over 320 downstairs at the moment to tell the story of the much larger 10 million people who've left Ireland in those 1,500 years. And the 70 to 80 million people around the world today that claim descent from those people, who are known as the Irish Diaspora. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine it's an unending project, Uh, infinite amount of potential stories that can be included. We look at the motivations people had for leaving, we look at the means they left, we look at the impact they had when they arrived in their homelands all over the world, and we look at how they've shaped and influenced the world since then as well, all the way up to today, and how we communicate and connect with that diaspora in the modern world. Um, the means by which that's been done has changed immensely. Now, thanks to events like the internet, social media, we can engage with people in seconds anywhere in the world, whereas before you wrote a letter, it could take weeks, you might never get a response. If you wanted to leave back then, at any point throughout the history, it could take weeks, months, even years, to get to certain parts of the globe. Now, with the advent of air travel, you can get to the other side of the planet in a a day, if not just slightly less. Um, So it's really changed how we engage. but it's still very important for that, that sense of distance. When we feel like a global village, there is still a physical distance between people. And if you can talk to somebody online, or you can Skype them, you still can't give them a hug when you're sitting in Australia. You still can't go and visit your own home place. So while it, how we've connected with our diaspora has changed. Um, some of it is for the better, but there's always going to be a little bit of a sense of detachment that mm. people just can't really overcome as of yet.
1: I mean, bite my tongue and hold off on all my questions about yes, that because sure. uh, I, I'm one of those 70 million that claims uh, mm. the tiny thread of Irish descent, uh, and and the story <laughs> fascinates me. But uh, I think we'll have to build a whole series of that's episodes, sure. hopefully, about that. Uh, but anyway, I just love what you guys are doing. And when I first came to the museum, uh, that's when I. Really noticed Nellie. Mm-hmm. You did a great job of uh, presenting her story mm-hmm. in a really compelling way that made me go out and read her book. Yes. Same. So uh, yeah, let's circle back to her and can you talk about um, her most famous undercover work that that kind of kicked off her career?
0: Uh, yes, I, I can. I could probably even just give you a little background on how she came to even even to get to that stage initially. Um, of course, because we celebrate the Irish diaspora. Nellie wouldn't be featured at all if she didn't have an Irish connection. Um, and Fitting into that broader story of how Irish people and their descendants can influence and change the world, Nellie is a brilliant story to illustrate that. Um, her grandfather left from Derry, the county Derry, county London Derry in Northern Ireland now, what it is today, in the 1790s, while the United States was only a very young country, and settled in Pennsylvania, um, in an area just outside Pittsburgh. And he um, had a son, Michael, who ended up becoming quite prominent locally, and this was Nellie's father. Um, The area even was named after them. It became known as Cochrane's Mill um, because he had bought, having started out with nothing, he worked as a labourer, he worked in a mill, he saved up enough money to purchase the mill, the lands around it, and ended up Turning his hand to so many other things, he became a merchant. He became the local postmaster in the area. Even became a judge after some time. And you can feel I feel like his character had some impact on how Nellie saw the world. How she felt her ambition may have stemmed from his, from his endeavours as well. He might have been a, a real role model figure for her. Um, now he had married twice, and interestingly, both to Irish American women. Uh, his first wife had been her, her surname had been Murphy, and his second was Kennedy. So you can see that 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 ties to Ireland were still important, and this community was uh, existed in the area and was still quite prominent. Um, but he had fifteen children: ten with his first wife, five with his second. Nellie was one of the five with the second. So it's a huge family. Luckily, they were quite prosperous, and maybe this is one of the reasons he had to constantly turn his hand to new things because it's a very big family to keep going. Um, but sadly, when Nellie was only six years old, he died. and She had been away in boarding school um, at the time. And the family fell on very hard straits. his mother was struggling to support the children as well on a much reduced income. Um, most of the father's estate um, had been used up as well following on from his death. So they, they struggled for quite a while, and that was one of the reasons um, Nelly felt that she had to gain a sense of independence, that she wanted to chart her own course in the world, and she didn't want to become a burden on her, on her parents. Because while she had attended school, she left quite young. She was only 14 years old when she decided to leave school. Um, she was also perhaps having a little bit of an adolescent rebellion, because she had been nicknamed Pinky as a child, because that was her favorite color. Most of the clothes she wore were pink. Um, and at a certain stage she decided that this was no longer acceptable. She was an independent adolescent now. And she did away with the name, did away with the pink clothes, and added an E to the end of her name. So it was instead of the Cochrane, it was Cochrane. She still gave it a little bit more a little bit more grandiose, a little bit more established. Um, and decided that she wanted to get a job. So when she decided um, Interestingly, journalism hadn't been something she'd been going into initially. She had been trying to find jobs locally. But an article appeared in the local paper, which was the Pittsburgh Dispatch, which was basically outlining how a woman's place in society was in the home. Nellie read this and was outraged by it, wrote a response as a letter to the paper. It was so well received um, that they asked her to come in. And she ended up going for an interview with them. Um, She was given a, a, a trial. She was given another piece to do. Um, on the impact of divorce on women. Uh, the article was so well received as well that they had to hire her. So she was given a job at the paper as a result of this, um, which she was delighted with. and That's when she adopted the name Nellie Bly. That was her pen name because she was officially a reporter now. She had to have a pen name to write. Um, but interestingly, after that, uh, she had been doing a lot of what she would do later in life, looking at issues in society, looking at injustices, looking at anything that uh, she felt it was uh, a symbol of an unequal society, and she was looking at women's role in factories in the area. Women workers working in factories, the conditions that they worked in, and she said that they were quite unfair. They were quite um, badly treated. This article caused an uproar in the local um, from the local factory owners. They wrote into the paper saying, "This is terrible. How can you allow a woman to write these scandalous things about us?" Um, she shouldn't even be writing about these topics in the first place. And the editor came under a lot of pressure, and then sidelined Nellie. So that she could only write about fashion, beauty, the home, uh, which she was outraged at. She didn't accept it. And like most um, journalists who are true to the creed, she refused to do so and instead left the country and went to Mexico for six months, where she continued writing as well about injustices that she found there. And without ever formally resigning from the paper as well, she just up and went, and <laughs> left, and went all the way to Mexico, which... Where, whereabouts in Mexico? She moved around a little bit, so she was in Mexico City, and she was in Northern Mexico as well, mm-hmm. but she um, stayed there for six months. Her initial intention had been to stay for much longer, but under the uh, president of the time Mexico was President Diaz, it was a little bit of a dictatorship in place at the time. It wasn't the most open society, and Nelly wrote an article about a local journalist who'd been imprisoned. Censorship was enacted there as well, um, which the authorities... Uh, heard about the article and they threatened to arrest her. So rather than be arrested she fled back to the United States <laughs> briefly returning to the Pittsburgh Dispatch but after having seen more of the world she decided that this wasn't what she wanted. She needed something bigger, something better.
1: Uh, we have to back up just for a second. Where sure. did she get the idea to go to Mexico? Like, what, what? No, it, I'm not sure. I mean is that, that seems really extreme for the time. <laughs> yes,
0: yeah, no it is and um, actually um, I think she was, she had a sense of wanderlust, she was a bit uh, she had a bit of itchy feet, she didn't want to she wanted to get away to something completely different, she really felt that she wanted to always be the first person to do something, and nobody of her age or her gender had ever gone off and done an adventure like this, so she just wanted to do it for the sake of doing it. Later on in 1888 actually she did publish her first book which was about her time in Mexico, called Six Months in Mexico um, her second book, uh, and her second and only, uh, final book was around the world 72 days but this was her first travel log i suppose of her time and then quite a young girl you know she was i think 17 years old at the time just after her first job just refusing to bow to the whims of society or the the town and the structure that she found herself within and instead of staying in her place she decided to completely ignore it leave still stay to her own track and do her own thing And then a common trait that you find throughout her career, managing to annoy people in high places everywhere she went, (laughs) and either having to leave (laughs) or bringing about great societal change. So, you know, she was uncompromising in that regard. So there is definitely something there. Um, But having left as well, Pittsburgh, she moved to New York City. And in New York City, she was basically penniless for a number of months. She was trying to get another job in journalism, because she, she had a real passion for it at this stage, but she couldn't get hired anywhere, and through her um, ability to talk her way into nearly anything, she managed to get into the office of the editor of the New York World, who was Joseph Pulitzer, who the Pulitzer Prizes are now named for, um, who had been newly appointed as editor to the New York World newspaper, and he was so impressed by her that he actually commissioned her to do an investigative journalist piece to undercover, and she she was chosen because it was for the women's lunatic asylum on Blackwell's Island in New York which obviously none of the male journalists would have been able to be admitted to but what she had to do to get in there was fake insanity get both the police and the local courts to sign her off as insane and then she was transferred to the asylum so she could do an exposit piece from the perspective of a patient inside and write about the conditions that she found there. And she was successful. She was very resourceful. When you read about the, when you read through the article about how she managed to do it, it's, uh, it's astounding. Um, she knew that many of the women who ended up there had been in perilous conditions, were usually poor, and so she decided to check herself into a local halfway house in the city for women, a women's refuge, and so that she would appear insane, um, using the terminology at the time, she stayed up all night in the room, she didn't sleep at all, so that she would have a more haggard appearance, look a little bit more dishevelled, and then walking around the house and saying incredulous things to other, other residents in the, in the building, uh, so that they would consider that she was a bit strange, a bit unusual, until the landlady ended up calling the police because they were all discomforted, everybody was a little bit out um, to come and check her. She continued this disguise and she was brought to the local police station, um, and then she was brought to the courts, but she kept telling everyone, oh, where are we going to the police station? It's like, oh, uh, we're going to find your lost luggage. It's like, she accepted this. So then when they were bringing her to the courts, oh, we we'll would have to go there and check next, um, playing along the entire time. And the judge, even that she was brought before to issue a verdict on this, completely bought into the entire uh, doctors certified her as insane as well. Uh, they brought two doctors in who conducted an exam, which just amounted to kind of shining a light in her eye and asking her a series of questions, uh, which she fooled. And then she was committed to Blackwell Women's Asylum, where she spent 10 days inside, um, incarcerated among all the other patients. Um, she wrote some very daunting facts around how the patients were treated, the conditions they went in. They were only given uh, a communal comb from their hair—they were always washed in cold water, and only once a week. Um, a lot of the medications that they were given, as well, meant that they were frequently very, very thirsty as a side effect. But they were never given water. They were locked up all night without any water, and they'd be screaming throughout the wards. Many of the women she said she found in there weren't insane; they just didn't speak English. So there were German, there were German women and women from Ireland locked in there. Um, who at the stage in the medical examination when they asked, do you speak English? Rather than get an interpreter in, they were unable to respond to any of the questions. just incarcerated them. Some for life, um, because they had nobody to speak up for them and nobody to defend them. The only reason that Nellie was released after 10 days is because the editor, Joseph Pulitzer, of the paper had arranged to do so and vouched for her and signed her out. Because without a relative or a senior figure who would do this, you couldn't leave of your own will unless you were declared sane, which was next to next impossible, using the procedures they had. But when she wrote this article, it made her a minor celebrity in New York, made her the most well-known female journalist in the city, but it also ended up leading to an inquiry into the asylum and the practices by which people were admitted, and the conditions, and how the staff treated the patients as well, and really improved the conditions for those that found inside, and made it much more stringent um, in terms of how you could be certified for admission as well. So her article really brought about great change in the city as a result. Um, and that's where she really started to gain her initial fame as a journalist, as well. And this is the platform that led her to do so many more articles. Like, she would investigate. What well, has then become known, or since has become known, uh, yellow journalism. So it was an idea that you, you know, the paper should be supported by circulation and advertising, and that's how you need to diversify rather than just having political patronage. Papers initially were owned by political parties, and they were there the public organ. That they should be more. They should tell about entertainment. They should do exposes. They should have news for everybody about absolutely everything. And the. Um, two major papers in the city at the time, were the New York Journal and the New York World, and they were having a battle for circulation. So anytime they could find a headline story that was more impressive than the other, they they won market share. Joseph Pulitzer was heavily engaged in this competition, so he would always encourage Nelly to go on bigger and bigger stories to find more more and more headlines that would grab the attention of the people in New York. And that's what led her to her most famous adventure of all, which was her journey around the world. So the idea that she had actually come up with as well was to recreate the fictional journey of Judas Verne's uh, Phileas Fogg and to travel around the world in 80 days, but to beat the record, uh, which she was determined to do so as well. Um, It hadn't been done by an individual as of yet. And she was also going to be both the first person and the first woman to ever break this fictional record. And a year later, she received permission to do so and funding from the paper because they knew this is a, an amazing story this is something that would really grab people's attention grab the attention of the public and will sustain paper sales for months as well given how long it would take to travel between her various different destinations that she had to go to so she did undertake her journey um, but interestingly um which may have also helped to sell the paper uh, a rival publication the cosmopolitan magazine decided that it wasn't enough that Nellie Bly and the new york world would break this world record and that she beat the clock. They wanted to steal the thunder from this event, so they paid for their own journalists to travel in the opposite direction <laughs> to Nellie and to beat both her and the world record. Um, but Nellie had no, no idea about this. She'd already left her on her journey and had no word of it reached her until very near to the end of her journey around the world as well. So an extra little bit of excitement for the general public and the readers back in the United States. Um, but she had an amazing journey. She was able to use advancements in technology that weren't were just not possible before, transatlantic ocean liners and ships, faster ships that didn't exist previously. Who also brought emigrants across the, tran- the Atlantic, further afield, but also improvements in underwater cables as well. And telegrams uh, could be transmitted to give updates and despatches on how she was getting on as she travelled around the world, so that the public could be. Uh, aware of what it was like, where she was, how she was getting on and so on and um, she decided to leave from New York and from New Jersey and head across the Atlantic and to circumnavigate returning to the west coast of the US and then coming back across where her arrival was sent in the opposite direction uh, just for a little bit of added spice I suppose um, but interestingly her first port of call then was to Britain she travelled to Britain after travelling across the Atlantic Ocean by ocean liner and then writing articles as well as she went, but when she arrived in France, just across the channel, she met Jules Verne, as well in Amiens, he lived in Amiens, a city not too far outside Paris, and interviewed him as part of her travelogue and part of her despatches as well, and again, obviously, to, to draw in the public imagination and to, you know, while competing for a fictional record to, to meet the man who had established it, and he vouched for uh, her endeavour, he supported it, he, he believed that she could do it. Ellie, of course, never doubted of a second herself. Uh, nor did Joseph Pulitzer, who was giving um, every support he could to the journey um, behind the scenes, which wasn't always made apparent, but would come up as, uh, as she progressed around the world. Um, she travelled as well from France and down to Brindisi in southern Italy as well, and travelled through the Suez Canal, which, of course, was only about 30 years old at the time. Uh, along the coast of Egypt, across the, uh, through the Red Sea and down to uh, what is now known as Sri Lanka, formerly really known as Ceylon, uh, which was a British protectorate at the time in the Indian Ocean. She crossed through the Straits uh, beside Malaysia and down to Singapore, travelled up to Hong Kong in China, which was a British possession as well at the time, and then from there travelled to Japan before finally returning across the Pacific Ocean to uh, San Francisco where her final part of her journey was by rail. But along the way she encountered endless adventures we might go into in, in a moment, but one thing that always struck me as well is that when she had arrived back in, in uh, San Francisco, she was actually two days behind schedule. And then when she had been in Hong Kong, she had learned that she had arrived rival reporter undertaking journey in the opposite direction as well. It was only got to her at that stage where she was about to embark on the final two legs of her journey. Um, And to make sure that she was successful that Cosmopolitan didn't steal the thunder of the New York world, Joseph Pulitzer is rumoured to have paid for the ocean liner which was leaving Southampton that was supposed to take Cosmopolitan reporter across the Atlantic to leave slightly early, before she had arrived, forcing her to take a much slower ship from what is now known as Cove in Ireland, uh, then known as Queenstown, uh, the Buccanea, which arrived four days too late while Nelly was picked up in San Francisco by a specially chartered train known as the Nellie Bly, Miss Nelly Bly Express uh, which set a new uh, overland record for the time it took to get from San Francisco to New York, 69 hours, I think it was, to do over 2,500 miles. Um, along the way, each of the station masters was presented with a very large bottle of champagne to allow the train to pass ahead of any of the other rail traffic as well, uh, which may be one of the reasons why they were able to achieve such great land speeds, um, and arrived back in New Jersey in 72 days. She had managed to complete her circumnavigation in the world, capturing the imagination of the American public, New York, and months of months of papers as well. Uh, eventually she would go on and then only a couple years later to write her account of this journey as well, which would be probably what inspired so many others. The, the record was later surpassed um, as in technology came along, but she still remains the first. And for that, As well as her work as an investigative journalist, she is, in 1998 she was inducted into the Women's National Hall of Fame in in the United States as well, alongside many others like Amelia Earhart, uh, Rosa Parks and more. So quite a woman, but she didn't stop there anyway. When she returned to New York, she jumped straight back into journalism. She continued going undercover. She exposed malpractices in local pawn shops in the city, how society women would often sell or pawn their jewellery um, for a number of days to sustain the life that they were maintaining and only reclaiming them then ahead of special events for parties and so on and the people that were making an absolute fortune off of this as well uh, the role, how, how it was often used to to handle stolen goods as well. She went into tenement buildings all around New York as well, met the local people who were living there, talked about um, the slum landlords who were charging extortionate rents in the in the various parts of New York City as well. On these properties, small rooms that could have up to eight different people staying in them, um, the different rates as well, depending on where in the building you were located. Uh, she looked at fire safety in these buildings as well. All, all issues that are now for the most part represented by uh, strict protocols and standards that have been put in place, but at the time were next and non-existent. But her role in highlighting these issues led to public attention and in, t- in, in time as well led to safeguards being put in place. So she never stopped investigating stories. And it was until 1894 that she continued in journalism. She only stopped writing and she had traveled this time to the New York world because she had gotten married. So she married a very wealthy industrialist, a manufacturing magnate, um, who was also a millionaire, ironically enough, um, called Seaman. And he, um, she gave up journalism to work with him, but there was a huge age gap at the time. I think she was only in her mid-twenties. He was 73 years old. So she, he had also had ailing health. So she started to help him run the business as well, helping to administer his business. And it was in 1904, he passed away. She actually took over the company which in 1904 becoming one of the leading industrialists on in the eastern seaboard of the united states while, while a woman was again a first um, but she was very resourceful and she actually managed to create two inventions herself she has two patents in her name which are now under elizabeth cochran seaman and you can still see them um, they're still available from the patents office in the u.s one for a is a stackable garbage can which uh, hadn't been invented before and then she had a kind of novelty milk churn as well So these were things that she'd come up with but they actually started manufacturing the, the the garbage can and Made quite a bit of money. She was successful for quite a while up until the beginning of the first world war, but a lot of the business had been um, Through negligence and through embezzlement by one of the factory managers actually ended up going bankrupt um, So she was again left almost penniless um, again after having so many more first to her name But rather than let this get her down, she decided to turn her hand back to journalism, and she went initially as a freelance journalist. But she got commissions for a number of smaller regional papers in the U.S. to Europe for the First World War, the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, and she became the first female and first American correspondent on the Eastern Front as well the war between the Austrian Empire and the Russians. And she had managed to based in Serbia, she wrote a number of different articles as well while she was there. and um, The first one, but her perspective was always quite different as well because while everybody else was discussing military, t- t- military tactics, manoeuvres, and most of the focus was on the western front and the border between France and Germany, she was giving them a different perspective in what was a much more mobile war and wasn't so much trench warfare as kind of open battle across large plains and large areas, um, but she also told the human perspective from the civilian As well. She would go to see how the war was impacting on Serbian women, how it was impacting on people in Hungary, Um, getting that human story about the cost of war in there as well, which for up to that point had been more or less ignored and wasn't really acknowledged as well. And this was kind of an eye opening event for her as well, having never been in a war prior to that, um, the bloodshed and the huge human cost that was associated with it really opened her eyes, and it really comes true in a lot of her writing as well. It wasn't sensationalism, she was really just trying to get the human story out there so that people could see the other side of the glorious battles and glorious victories that they were hearing about from all the other presses. And And interestingly at the time as well, the following year, 1915, while she was based there, she was actually arrested local authorities, of course it was a state of war, uh, they didn't believe that she was an American journalist, they believed that she was British spy, so she was incarcerated and imprisoned, um, later released, luckily. Um, so she got to see the impact of war as well, from that angle as well, which was something, again, that nobody was hearing back home. So she lived a very, very amazing life. Um, following the war as well, she did return home, but she actually passed away quite young. She died in 1922, and she had been born in 1864, so she was quite quite a young woman, um, having you know, arrived into the world during the American Civil War, and then very soon after the end of the First World War, she died quite young, and she was buried in the Bronx um, in New York as well. But in her quite short life, she packed in so much. She was a pioneer in so many different fields, and I guess a, a real role model for everyone who came after her, not just women, but even any, any journalists, um, anybody who's interested in human rights, is interested in improving the plight of her fellow man and women. Um, so you can see why she rightfully has a place in the, in the Hall of Fame today.
1: Yeah. Oh, I'm surprised. I'm uh, getting quite emotional <laughs> listening to this. I mean, I already felt very attracted to her just from what I knew and from reading yes. her writing, but yeah. um, she's such a, a charismatic uh, person. I, I can only... Imagine encountering her <laughs> as a Traveller. traveler, as a fellow traveler. Yes. Well, what, what kind of traveler do you think she she was? How did she approach traveling?
0: Well, having, having read most of her work, uh, very, very independently. She wasn't really, apart from when she returned to the US and she had her specially chartered train, which was Pulitzers doing more than anything else. Um, She travelled very lightly, um, she didn't have very much with her, and they made quite a a note of this. I think when she left initially on her journey, she only had a single suitcase um, with a couple of changes of clothes, some writing materials, the coat that she had been wearing, and very little else. She kept all of her money in a pouch uh, attached to her waist, which had, I think, primarily it was British pounds, some American dollars, and gold. So she was prepared for any eventuality as she traveled. Um, she didn't let adversity, over- adversity overcome her as well during her travels um, because when she would have setbacks as she was traveling the world, when she was in Hong Kong, her ship had been delayed. Um, and rather than write about how much of an issue this was for her, she decided to use her newfound time to explore part of the country. So she traveled to the mainland and she visited a leper colony while she was there, which is not something any, uh, any usual travel tourist would, would go toward, it would be something you'd, you'd actually intentionally avoid because of the risk of contagion. But she wanted to see, again, because of her plight for those, those suffering, those marginalised members of society, anybody that was seen um, to be excluded from the general narrative of the nation. Uh, she wanted to know more about it, she wanted to know why, she wanted to hear from them. And even though she couldn't speak any Mandarin, um, she did travel there and she was able to include parts of her her uh, adventure there in, in her uh, dispatches back home as well, which again highlighted plights to people living on the west and the east coast of the
1: United States that would never have heard about them before. It, do you happen to know the name of the leper colony or what city it was near? It was, I think it was quite near,
0: um, I can't recall offhand, but it was, I think near Guadong, as far as I can remember I'll check and I'll, I'll let you know but
1: this is really strange because yeah. I, I lived in China for a year when I was 25 ah. and I went to a leper colony okay <laughs> I, I wonder, uh, wonder could it be the same yeah, yeah. Uh, out of the same desire um, yes that's really startling very uh, oh. <laughs> interesting I'm going to have to look that up yes after, yeah,
0: so I'll, I'll forward to something I don't yeah, know if yeah, it's yeah, if yeah. the colony itself is named but yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely yeah. the region is anyway so fascinating okay. I'll, I'll have a look for you wow but, um, yeah, and I think she was always quite interesting. Well, and she would never really say no to anything. That was the other part, I think, that made her adventures so interesting to people. She'd seek out adventure um, as well. I think while she was based in Singapore, or could have been called it Macore, she uh, ended up buying a monkey from <laughs> local people, even though she had no way of travelling or transporting it, and it would never have been permitted on any of the ocean liners so that she was taking. Uh, She just decided to, I think it was a novelty factor, but it was just something that, you know, I guess now we just, somebody would just take a photo with one, but Mm -hmm. you know, at the time, oh, I can't, I, I don't know what became of it as either, I'm sure she released it, Um, but uh, yeah, just the kind of spontaneity, I guess, uh, a sense of adventure, a sense of fun, quite independent minded, um, but also quite focused as well. She was determined to keep to her route. Um, she didn't have travelling companions with her as well so she was doing this journey herself which was also, I think, a testament to her her sense of endurance and her, her sense of independence that she, she would do this, it would be her achievement and it wouldn't be the result of anybody else's work or she wouldn't have too easy a time of it, she would, she would stick as closely to the determined route that she had and, and really break the record the way it should have been done. Um, apart from her, her special train journey at the end. <laughs> right, but other than, right, that, right, right. Yeah, other than that, very much um, quite independent minded.
1: Yeah. What were her interactions like with, with other travellers?
0: Yeah, so again, I guess you get a little bit of a flavour from the idea of her purchasing Monkey locally or going to visit um, those members of society who were, who were quite marginalised. Um, she enjoyed travel. In, it, in its essence as well moving from place to place but it really it seems that again the human story was what she really wanted to to write about she was interested in locations and architecture and places but linking up with people as well and talking to them that's what you see coming in to her writings as well that's what you see her I think drawn toward the idea that she was giving a voice to somebody who in ordinary circumstances would never have gotten one mm-hmm. so I think that was what for her I think she was almost in a sense empowering local people through her adventures Mm -hmm. Um, and I think while obviously her primary Focus was to complete the journey and to boost circulation for the paper. She used this opportunity herself to push some of her own ideals and some of her own ambitions as well, which was about getting these people to share stories with her, getting a chance to get them out there and get them back to the general public again, with the ambition and the hope, I'm sure, of improving their lot in the world and their place in society, which is just something at the common theme that runs throughout all of her writing, all of her work, all of her life as well. Everything she did was always with that. And goal in place.
1: So, I'm going to go out on a limb and ask, mm. uh, do you have an example of one of those voices that she, uh, or people that she gave voice to?
0: Yes, um, <laughs> thinking through her journey, I mean, she met so many different people, and again, while well, she did meet celebrity figures like Charles Fern, who, of course, um, was, was absolutely essential given the undertaking that she was um, traveling on. I believe... Um, I think going back to her time at the at the Leper colony in China, she was interviewing a lot of the uh, missionaries who had been based there, uh, nurses, and many of them were obviously members of religious orders that were involved in this at the time, and I think she recorded, I can't record the name of the nurse at the time, but some of her thoughts on what it was like to live there as well, as some of the thoughts in the society. Of course, this is during the Qing Dynasty as well, it's in Imperial China. Um, compared to today, it was economically a little bit weaker, and it was also frequently subject to... Um, pressure from Western nations as well um, and much poorer than it would be today and I think that was conveyed a lot in how close a lot of people lived to the poverty line how mm-hmm. floods, famine or anything along those lines that might take place had a huge impact on many, many more people than it was ever thought imaginable you can imagine the population densities in China at the time and, and in the east it was huge, this is the huge agricultural heartland of China mm-hmm. and anything like what occurred later in the 1930s, the Yangtze River flood kills millions of people and I guess a sense of being so close to an impending disaster and how those at the edges of society like the lepers then who would be ostracized because they wouldn't they were seen as a risk people always had this sense of, of being vulnerable the potential for danger, the potential for something to go wrong and I think the idea that rather than just forget any of these um, her interviews with a number of people she met kind of conveyed that that um, they were aware of this but they were very much in a the minority and they were a very small number of society and they were seen as kind of idealists Just mm. something that didn't really make its way back or wasn't even widely accepted in the wider world as well that mm. um, they should be given equal treatment to everybody else and uh, I think Nelly was very happy to give these voices
1: a platform um, where no one else was offering to do it Okay, so I have just two more questions. (laughs) Um, I have to recover because that that really makes me emotional. That's really, really beautiful. I'm surprised how much it's touching me. Um, Did travel change her? Maybe it's an impossible question Mm -hmm. to answer, but let's take a try.
0: Well, I, I can't see how it couldn't have, I think, really, because now while she never says it explicitly when you look at her interactions with people as she travels and she look at her experiences I think travel always changes people um, it exposed her to so much more than she would ever have encountered even, even when she was based in New York and she was dealing with horrible injustices and poverty and tenements, insane asylums and urban poverty in the western world when she started to travel around the world and she was exposed to so many different human situations so many different societies so many different uh, places that really did have an impact on her I mean Obviously, it didn't discourage her because when she came back, she did some of her best writing about dealing with these issues. I think it really, I think it revitalized her, her sense of uh, almost social justice. Um, that's why she dedicated the next decade to writing about these topics. She remained primarily in the US, but then having later traveled to Europe as well as, uh, as a war correspondent. But again, rather than taking the big story, she was going after the cost the cost of war, the human cost. She was looking at the people who were most affected. I think it really stuck with her and it didn't discourage her from travel because she chose to do so. And again, she stuck to her conventions and her convictions in always seeking out those people who were impacted the most. So I think it really I think, focused her on what she wanted and the areas that her priorities in life and in her writing that were mm-hmm. most important um, going forward. And she used as well, uh, later her position, while she was quite wealthy industrialist as well, the things that she was focusing on were always about improving sanitation, improving hygiene, improving women's rights. She covered, the uh, I think it was the 1913, just, just before she embarked as a war correspondent to Europe, um, on the women's move for women's franchise for universal suffrage and suffragist marches in the US. And she, at the time, estimated that it would be 1920 before women achieved suffrage. She wasn't very, she was quite, she had quite an insight <laughs> as well before then. She probably would have been far more involved as well um, had the war not started and she traveled overseas as well. So this is something you see, like the plight of women, very important to her, the plight of children, the plight of the poor, the plight of anybody in a, uh, in a marginal position, those in insane asylums and so on. Um, I think that strengthened her convictions. And the sense of having travelled the world and experienced this can um, only have made her, I think, a better journalist, but also seemingly a better person as well.
1: So you've told some amazing stories already from her life, uh, but I always like to end with the best yeah. travel story. Uh, what, what was the best travel story from her life? It's very
0: difficult, given how many amazing experiences she had. But um, not know, I think it for me, I find that. Uh, I think the best story that she really had, I think was her time in the asylum I, while it 's not a, a good experience um, because it was her first investigative journalist' story and her first time going undercover, and the lens that she had to go through just to get that story and the conditions that she exposed inside I think it 's um, quite amazing, I'm just remembering part of the medical interview upon arrival in what was a quite leafy uh, lovely, lovely uh, location, Blackwell islands. Um, Arriving inside, I think she remembers hearing that there was a really strong smell, horrible smell, coming from the from the asylum. Before she arrived, she she asserted that it was the smell coming from the kitchens, and judging by the food she received later, it probably was. <laughs> um, but when she had arrived, there was two other women uh, being transported with her, and she was talking to them as she travelled, and they were saying that she was asking, "Why, are, why are we going here? Why are you going here?" Like, oh, they think we're insane. Um, she clearly believed that. The women that were travelling with her weren't saying that they were victims of, of the system as well. And when she had arrived, they were they met by a doctor and a nurse as well and assessed one final time before they were finally admitted. But apparently, she tells the discourse that while the doctor was asking questions of her, you know, how they were measuring her, they were weighing her, and that's where we got the stats at at the beginning, um, checking her health and asking her questions, uh, the doctor was more focused on flirting with the local nurse. Than actually dealing with any of the issues around admitting Nellie, uh, she went under the name Nellie Brown. Uh, but the nurse said, for every one question that was was presented to her, he asked the nurse five, like, when is your next day off? Are you going to go into the city? All this sort of thing. And then, you know, while assessing the mental state of the patient, at the same time, very cavalier kind of attitude. And it's like, from her perspective, this was atrocious because the results of this assessment meant whether you would spend the rest of your life behind bars or not, and while if you were a common criminal, you had a right to trial, a right to appeal, a right to um, pardon, and eventually, you know, a right to release, whereas in this case, none of that was an option. So this was a very important moment, and yet it was being treated so, so unbelievably poorly, and that immediately after, the woman that came just behind her had been a German speaker, didn't speak English, and that's one of the, the issue she had a huge problem with as well um, the nurse who was assessing her actually ha- was German, come from Germany, did speak German but refused to question her in German because she, a sense of shame about her language apparently, That's, that was Nelly's conclusion but um, as a result of that rather than go outside and seek an interpreter they just admitted her because she couldn't respond to most of the questions and assumed everything up to that point had been in order so she must be insane and admitted her inside so when you can Get a real sense just from those little encounters about how horrible a system it was in place. Um, The people that were supposedly running and supervising the asylum were far more interested in their own personal lives than in any of the conditions the patients were subject to. Any how, what condition their mental state was in. And at this point, Nellie did a test as well. She answered everything uh, completely normally. She didn't. Vain insanity to see if at this stage, well, now I'm speaking to you uh, in a perfectly rational manner. Oh, well, obviously this was a mistake. Release the woman, and they didn't. So they assumed that uh, what it was the double-edged sword, and a catch twenty-two, that if you were if you appear perfectly sane, it was em- it was evidence of your insanity because you were clearly faking it, and you were so good at it that you were attempting deception. Um, so whether. Whether you or in the alternate was you acted insane, and then of course you were insane, but you 're acting too rationally so you're clearly insane. so there was no way to pass this examination um, and be released so it was it was a, a formality that was gone through, but it was not a real assessment and this is part of what came out in ellie 's writings, and she talks about how the women were deprived of water at night and when they were incarcerated as well, and that she herself was as well, that whenever they would make too much noise they were threatened with beatings or they were medicated, and she had received some medication as well, and she writes that like, her mouth was so dry and so parched that she became unable to speak, having called out for hours for water, um, It reached such a stage that she wasn't able to do so anymore, um, I think only on the fourth day that she'd been incarcerated. It's so when you look at that, um, the conditions that she was under, I think that became, because it's also the story that cat her to local fame and national fame, um, I think it's probably her best, while not, while not a warm and heartwarming story. It is in the regard that as a result of this, the inquiry that took place really improved the conditions for everybody who, who had been uh, patients beside her. Mm-hmm. And the, the vetting process became so much more detailed and so much more focused that it did allow a lot of people who would have ended up there a chance at liberty. Um, Rather than just being a place for problem members of society, it started to move toward more of a proper medical facility as a result. So, I think that's an amazing legacy to leave behind. While traveling the world is a very impressive endeavor and breaking a fictional world record, and you know, that really captures people's imaginations. And she did so much along the way. I think that's the very first act that she did that brought about real change in society it's probably her most important article and her most important story um, that was the forerunner for so many more came Mm. afterwards
1: Mm. I'm really glad that you returned back uh, to that and especially the the German immigrant Mm. who Mm. was just shuffled off into uh, incarceration that is a travel story that we'll never know (laughs) yes luckily (laughs) yeah yeah Uh, and I I just want to ask what about you. What's your best travel story? Well, I don't <laughs> know, not, I think I'm nodding at the caliber of Nelly Bly, but. Um,
0: I'm sure, my best travel story. Um, I suppose last year uh, I went to Russia for the World Cup. Wow. Um, I have Russian friends as well, so I had the, the privilege of travelling with Russian speakers, which really made the journey a lot more um, a lot a lot more adventurous than it might have been otherwise. Yeah. Um, because we also used the opportunity presented by the World Cup. We did go to one match. Ireland weren't in the World Cup, so or Northern Ireland. So we didn't have a huge vested interest in attending, uh, even though we would be fans. So we ended up going to Japan and Colombia. in Saransk. Uh, we had flown into Moscow. We had, my friends had relatives there. Uh, we traveled from there to Saransk. And then we were going back to his home city, where his grandmother lived, which is a tiny little place um, called Yashkarola near Kazan. But on the way to the match, we had to take one of these overnight trains from Moscow all the way to Saransk, and we left, I think at midnight, the train journey, we arrived around one o'clock the following day, so it was very long, there's no such thing like this in Ireland, uh, you can't take a train for more than three hours in <laughs> any direction at all. Um, so just to see the Russian landscape we passed was very impressive. but. For me, the most engaging part was the passengers that we met when we were on the train. If anybody who's been on these, you realise that we were in the standard cabin, standard. So it was open, the carriage. Um, there were two beds with a table in between, two bunk beds either side, and more on the aisle or two, and it continues along the train in this fashion. And the whole train, rightfully so, was filled with fans who were going to the match. And it was Japan versus Colombia the train was maybe about 80% Colombian fans, 20% Japanese, so there was a lot more Colombians there than the Japanese, uh, but when we arrived there was nobody in the compartment just across from us, there was nobody in those beds, we were kind of wondering oh, who will end up here because we were the unusual people we were the we were neither fans of either team but we were going to the match anyway and actually it was neither colombians nor japanese it was two russian men ended up sitting there uh, right across from us and at first we were horrified and terrified because they looked like huge soccer hooligans and actually it turned out that they were um, they said that themselves. Uh, they were fans of uh, Spartak Moscow, and <laughs> they were professional hooligans. Uh, so we thought, "Oh, this is terrible! We're going to be sleeping beside them for like fifteen hours. <laughs> what are we going to do?" Um, they also looked quite intimidating. They were both about forty, bald, very muscular, scars and tattoos all over them. We <laughs> like, "Okay." So we. Up a conversation with them anyway. They did speak English, luckily. You uh, know, my, my traveling companion, he spoke Russian. Um, and they actually turned out to be some of the friendliest people we'd ever met. They were really warm, really engaging. They travel all the time. They go to all these matches. They brought loads of provisions, we were such novices, we had like bags of crisps and a few beers and uh, some chocolate and stuff and, uh, it's a very long journey they were taking out roast chickens and they had like full like a cranberry juice and then we offered them a beer to try to like, reciprocate and no, oh, no, it's okay, in a minute we will get out the real alcohol and they took out this bottle of homemade vodka, uh, which they made in their own house um, with them and went to fetch uh, glasses from the every 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 carriage has an attendant with a little stall in a little <laughs> office. And they you're not actually allowed to drink on the train. We didn't know that at the time. You can't drink alcohol on it. But it was about Nearly one in the morning, and um, was going to sleep. you. So they gave her four glass tumblers to him. He asked me, "What are they for?" I was like, "Oh, it's just for water." And <laughs> we ended up uh, drinking the vodka for at least an hour and a half or something in the train, while everyone else was going to sleep. So we had to like grab it from the top and gently toast <laughs> it by the bottom. So it was very muffled sound, but it tasted like drinking fire. It was very intense stuff. And uh, both of the guys had their shirts off at this stage as well, so they looked really intimidating. So in the the uh, little security guy came along he was only about 19 and he really didn't want to get involved so he just kept going um and we ended up yeah we had all of that with them uh, to sleep uh, horrible hangovers the next morning but we went to the match and we ended up bringing the two guys and they were both ex-army guys they were both in the they were both in the russian army and they they were the warmest they were telling us stories of their travels they were they're very Warm people, um, they're very emotive people as well, like the Russians. They really want to get to know you. They ask the most piercing questions. Uh, they're really family focused as well. They're very engaged with love. They're very romantic people. They always want to know about love. Are you in love? Are you married? Why not? When are you going to be? Where <laughs> were you before? Uh, even though they could be divorced three times, which is always uh, the inter- very hopelessly romantic. But they had uh, telling us about when they'd gone to the Euros in Marseille, in France, a couple of years before, and that. This is when we started talking about their hooliganism because we asked them if they were football fans, and this is they started telling us these stories. They went over when Russia won the in the Euros, and they had. Uh their friend had been one of the chief hooligans that caused so much <laughs> trouble over there in Marseille um, he ended up starting a fight England and, and Russia had some tiffs around the country and his friend got arrested for his involvement in it and uh, he ended up spending six months in, in Marseille in a prison <laughs> as a result and they, they were telling us this is a great story you know but, um, they have it presented as actually it's more of a, like, a gentleman's affair right? like oh you just go and people all start writing but like, it's like no no everybody does this um, in Moscow there's about six football teams in the city, and anytime there's a local match between any two, they all arrive, but they pre-arrange to meet each other, these groups of uh, supporters and hooligans, and they arrange a fight, and then they fight each other, and then they go to the match and they celebrate, and afterwards they all meet up together and have drinks, so they don't just attack random members of the public, it's all this kind of like pre-arranged and then afterwards they're best friends even though you know a couple hours before you're breaking a bottle off somebody's <laughs> head now he's your now he's your drinking companion and yeah so we ended up uh, we had to wait a couple hours after the match as well to get our train to the next city we were staying in and they ended up we brought them to an Irish bar and ended up which happened to be one in the middle of nowhere in Russia they have one in the middle of the city the only one that was open late as well before the train so we were all in there and uh, nobody in there had ever been to Ireland it wasn't owned by an Irish person the, the guy was pouring a pint of Guinness which one poll as well I had to correct him on that he was so grateful um but a great experience and they tried irish whiskey then as well and it was just uh, yeah really yeah stuck with me i guess my big lesson from that was always not to judge a book by its cover, and that stereotypes exist and sometimes are true, but also they're not the full story. So while these men looked like hooligans, were hooligans, but their hooliganism, what I perceived it to be, and the pre- presentation I think often of, of Russian people through the media uh, can be a lot harsher than ordinary people on the ground who, who we found like the most hospitable everywhere we went. Uh, barbers were offering us free, haircuts. We went to this town, and no Irish people had ever gone there before, and they couldn't believe we were from Ireland. Was like, why are you here? was the question <laughs> you were getting the most. Because when you left the host cities, you know, oh, there's just regular, ordinary Russia, small town Russia. I said, but why? I said, we're here for the World Cup, and we're using it as an opportunity to see more of the country while we have our visa. Um, but they were just so warm, oh you must come over for dinner, we'll get the family and you know we're going to little dachas out by lakes in the countryside and they're making us barbecue and people offering you haircuts and bringing you for drinks and you just felt so indebted to everybody, they really wanted to make the best impression that they could and they were very concerned about what do you think of Russia, what do you think of it as a country, as a people and getting their views was just something that I'd never get the opportunity to do before so I guess for me that's been one of the the adventures I've most enjoyed and uh has stuck with me then since too.
1: Nathan, that's beautiful. What a great ending. Thank you so much. No, no Thank you again so much to Nathan for telling Nellie's story. She wrote in her book, standing there alone among strange people, I thought how sweet life is may we all find the same courage if you have a moment please consider donating to weston's fund at westonsfund.org it's an organization that covers the medical costs of families who lose their children to miscarriage and stillbirth go to westonsfund.org that's w-e-s-t-i-n-s-f-u-n-d.org to make a donation You can find a link on our webpage, and we'll have a link there to EPIC, the Irish Emigration Museum, as well, so you can learn more about their work. Thank you also to Dana Boulay for her music, and thank you for listening.